welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 87th episode, our guest is Carlos Dangler. Here's his biography. In 1998, I co-founded the band Interpol with Daniel Kessler and Paul Banks. Sam Fogarino joined in 2000, and over the next decade, we went on to release four studio albums and tour the world three times, playing numerous festivals, live radio shows, and live TV. Interpol's first two albums have gone gold in the United States, and the band is regularly regarded as a seminal indie rock band of the early millennium. 2007, I began experiencing personal and creative differences with my bandmates and the music industry. In 2009, the band entered group therapy to try to find a way to resolve these differences. Despite our best collective efforts over the course of a year, we could not do so, and I wasn't able to stay. I left the band just before New Year's Day 2010. Actor training became my new focus. For the next five years, I spent virtually all of my time within the privacy of conservatory classrooms around other young students who were undergoing a similar process of discovery. In 2012, I was fortunate to be accepted to the New York University Graduate Acting Program and received a Master of Fine Arts degree in the spring of 2015. I made my professional acting debut in the summer of 2015 at the Dorset Theatre Festival in the regional premiere of Kate Forget's very funny Sherlock Holmes and the Case of the Jersey Lily, playing two roles, Professor Moriarty's lackey, John Smith, and the chief attendant to Queen Victoria, Abdul Karim. I've also begun working on an essayistic memoir. I'm quite excited by some of the directions the work is taking so far. I've started soliciting publishers. It's very early in the process and I will continue to update as things progress. In late March 2016, I had the honor of performing with the 8G band, the house band on Late Night with Seth Meyers. It was truly a special experience to play bass guitar with such incredible musicians on such a fun and exciting show. I was very excited to have presented my solo show, Homo Sapiens Interruptus, at the New York International Fringe Festival in August 2016. The show was created while I was at NYU and had been developing and workshopping it consistently since it began. You can catch Carlos this week as he stars in A Proust Sonata, a multimedia concert theater work conceived and directed by Sarah Rothenberg, artistic and general director of Decamera. The production is inspired by Marcel Proust's early 20th century masterpiece In Search of Lost Time and interweaves text, music, and image into an innovative multimedia performance. Performances start at 8 p.m. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the Lois Child Studio Theater at the Moody Center for the Arts at Rice University, 6100 Main Street, Houston, Texas. For tickets and more information, call 713-348-ARTS-A-R-T-S, or visit their website at moody.rice.edu forward slash events forward slash Proust dash Sonata. That's P-R-O-U-S-T dash S-O-N-A-T-A. And now on to the show. Hello. Carlos? Yes, Rob. Hey. Yeah, hey, great to finally talk to you, man. Finally. <laughs> finally, in crystal clear landline. That's right. This is actually really good. Yeah, no, this is this is uh, much better than usual. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much, first of all, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to be on here. I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. I really love your show. So. Oh, wow. That's so, so great to hear. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to talk to you for a number of reasons, um, but the main one... Uh, just kind of recently was your essay you wrote for N Plus One magazine mm-hmm. on the occasion of the 15th anniversary of Turn On the Bright Lights, which, um, I mean, it just for me, was a monster album. You know, it's like one of those things where, and I'm sure you have, you know, I read your writing, I know you have albums and things and time periods of your life where you absorb music, and it's a really, like, uh, special time, and, you know, that came out right at the beginning of college for me, and so that was a really important album in my life, just kind of, you know, went, based on when it came out and you know what I was into at the time so um, just like that that hit me in a, in a very uh, real memorable way so I, when I read that I was like I had a kind of flash of rec- recognition so uh, mm. what was it like to reflect back for you as, as somebody that was involved in the creation of uh, that album you know look back all these years later yeah um, thank you for saying that and you know I've heard that um, many many times it, I, it never ceases to amaze me how 
uh, how much of an impact that record had on people, mm-hmm. um, on their lives. It, it really, you know, I never in a, in my wildest dreams as a youth would have uh, and ever could have anticipated that I would be contributing to something that would have the the degree of, of uh, influence and effect on so many people's lives in the same way as all, all you know, a bunch of other albums um, did for me uh, when I was that age. I mean, you know, uh, I'm a. I, I was a bit on the older side when that record uh, uh, came out. I was 28, and you know that's still fairly, fairly young in the grand scheme of things. But in rock and roll years, it's pretty late. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had already kind of uh, experienced grunge and so forth in high school, and um, I wasn't big on Nirvana. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I know when Nevermind came out, that was that you know that really turned the dial. Um, and I think, you know, in many ways, maybe uh, a band that preceded us for uh, by about a year, The Strokes, probably oh, yeah. also had a huge impact. And in many ways, I, I don't know that uh, Interpol would have had the, the, the kind of success. I'm not, just, I'm not saying that they wouldn't have had success, mm-hmm. but the kind of success that we had um, without the the road being the with that without the palette being kind of primed if you will by by the strokes um and so just to feel like i was part of something like that which i'd already experienced as a uh, as a younger man um on the other side of the coin mm-hmm. um listening to these records and and just having my soul shaken again not so much by grunge um because i was much more of a headbanger mm-hmm. and by the time grunge came out my tastes were shifting to other avenues but nonetheless i i i had friends that were so deeply affected by Mm-hmm. Music and there are so many albums that have deeply affected me that you know mm-hmm. I couldn't conceive of my life um, without the the uh, input from those records kind of chiming in at every you know albums that I still listen to today mm-hmm. actually. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I went back and started listening to that, and that that first song just comes on, and I'm just oh my gosh, I'm just right back, right and, back where it was, you know, when I first heard that. So um, yeah, and so to write the essay was definitely I felt like going back to something but it was very um uh i don't know how to how to put it uh i want to say gratifying but that's not exactly the the Mm -hmm. i'm I'm searching for but it it just uh, things are so different for me now and so i was also just really grateful to be able to have a certain perspective on what happened to be able to write about it to Mm -hmm. be able to you know tell people about this experience that I had from a from a place that wasn't um, embedded within uh, the uh, the chaos and the insanity that more often than not accompanies these kinds of experiences, you know, from a more grounded place. And um, it was a very surreal experience to be writing that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Well, I'm glad you brought up the Strokes because I was I was definitely listening to that right around exactly the same time so that was definitely right in my wheelhouse and you know that whole wave of the white stripes and and you guys and Mm -hmm. and you know that whole thing was just so like it just hit me like a wave i was like but that it was cool too because then i got to hear oh who are these people influenced by who did they listen to you know and that's always the thing that i like because then years later when for example and i hope you don't mind me making this comparison but i hear a lot of joy division and new order in your in your plane and that was always something that later on because i didn't hear that when I was first listening to your album but later on when I finally did get you know educated I was like oh okay I think that you know he was probably listening to that when you know he was younger and you know they were probably listening to something else you know it's it's always fun to just trace the lineage of you know uh, styles of music back you know yeah I think uh, last I checked Interpol is classified as a neo post punk revivalist (laughs) it's a really long name yeah it's it's such crazy (laughs) genre um and i said oh whoa i never knew that i would be part of a post-punk revivalist movement (laughs) i don't remember signing that form (laughs) exactly exactly well that's interesting yeah um but you know i really enjoyed in your essay um how you mentioned the bass riff uh from the middle of that fleetwood max song the chain because um as somebody you know i started playing guitar when i was like 12 and that was one of the 
first like bass riffs that I ever you know mm-hmm. caught on to, and that's you know it's funny because you you talk about it being kind of an easy listening thing, but it's it's very universal, and that that bass line just kind of hits you right in the sweet mm-hmm. spot, right in the gr- oh, best part of that song. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, There's something kind of very haunting about that moment mm-hmm. where you think the song's gonna finish, and then out of those ashes rises this very unexpected bass line that you know, and I don't know, it, it just for there's just a split second where it really does sound like a lot more post-punky than what you would than everything else on that record mm-hmm. and then when the drums kind of kick back in and the harmonies kick back in then we, we I think we go solidly back to the sort of classic rock genre <laughs> but but even there it's still a bit more haunting a little yeah. bit more um, um, dark mm-hmm. than, especially than anything else on that record oh yeah um, and it just reminds, you know, it's during that moment where I remember when I first started listening to the record, which was a bit late, um, but it was that moment that sort of sold me on that record where I was like, okay, I've just sort of been listening to this record up until this moment, kind of going like, all right, these are great songs, but I don't know if I can get on board them because I don't really listen to this kind of music. Um, and then that bass line kicks mm-hmm. in and the song is over and I'm totally sold right. by the end yeah. of it. Like, oh no. <laughs> This album is actually genius. What the hell am I talking about? And I think that's just, I think the album is remarkable in that sense that it, in its reach, so many people, whether or not that's your kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not typically my kind of music, but like there's something infectious and classic and just um, arresting about mm-hmm. that record. Well, it's the bass doing a lot of work by itself, and, you know, the stereotype about the bass is just it's kind of in the background, and it's like, you know, boom, 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 <laughs> like playing ones and fifths or whatever, you know, and then going back and forth like that. But, you know, when when you get to something like that, that comes front and center. It, it's leading the music, you know, and that's I, that's what I always liked about your playing is that you, you're not in the background. You're right, you know, fighting for your right with everyone else, and mm-hmm. that's something I always appreciated about, about your playing, you know. Just as somebody who's who's trying to you know play himself, yeah. you know, it always stuck out to me. So thank you. Yeah, the bass guitar is has a has its own timbre, mm-hmm. you know, its own kind of sound. It's not just a guitar that's lower. <laughs> yeah, right. That's yeah. That's precisely right. Um, but what did you? Um, how did you choose the Fender Jazz Bass? I mean, I know that's kind of your signature, or at least it was. What you know? What? How did you come to that? In My brother particular? played it. Oh, <laughs> long answer. Okay. All right. <laughs> I was barring, uh, uh, you know, here's a little morsel of, uh, of, of history, which may or may not make it to my memoir, but um, I actually, uh, first of all, didn't own a bass guitar, had never played bass guitar before joining the group, and uh, I was a, an electric, I was a lapsed musician, if you will, I, I, I was pursuing a, um, a scholarly path, and I hadn't been playing um, music for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, so there was a bit of a resurrection for me, um, and when I was playing, I was, I was a heavy metal guitarist and mm. so that you know at age 19 or 20 I put that all behind me I, I sold and hawked all my equipment and just essentially decided that I was gonna be a philosophy professor um, and so everything changed you know when I met Daniel and Paul mm. and um, our old drummer our uh, Interpol's original drummer Greg Drudy um, in, uh, around 1997 at NYU um, and uh, a bass the, the position was a bass guitarist and I said well it has a fretboard it's got two less strings than um, I, I know what to do with they're a bit bigger but let's see if this can work and it did um, I have a very strong grounding in music theory and I think that helps in terms of you know going back and forth between uh, instruments and um, I since I didn't have a bass I was playing a shitty Ibanez uh, bass guitar that Daniel had li- lying around his apartment and then when I actually had to play a gig I decided that I asked my brother politely if I could borrow his uh, Fender Jazz bass because I, that's what he was playing and um, I was uh, Interpol's first uh, you know first year of gigging in New York City was with my brother's um, um, uh, Fender Jazz and mm. so by the time it came from, for the band fun to, to uh, be splurged on a an actual bass guitar, that uh-huh. so, uh, so that the bassist could actually have a ba- an, uh, a bass guitar that he owns, um, which was about a year in. Mm. Uh, I had already grown so accustomed to the Fender Jazz, and mm. 
um, I think it's very well suited to my, my playing style. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, now switching gears a little bit, also in the essay, um, you talk pretty candidly about your drug and alcohol use during that time. Um, and this may be a dumb question, but I've, I've never even seen cocaine and I've never obviously done it. So I don't know what it's like. And the way I always think of musicians doing things like that, even drugs I've never even, you know, seen one bit of is, do you think they're used in like athletics, like steroids would be in baseball, for example, because I always thought that was like a performance enhancing drug. Cause like all my favorite artists at some point seem like they got into this and I'm sure it's not just all, you know, it's, it's obviously for a reason. It's like this obviously enhances something about it. So I, I mean, I don't know what, what your philosophy on drugs is now versus then, but it seems like then would, would it be fair to say that that's maybe part of how, you know, the appeal at the time? Uh, the appeal for cocaine in particular, uh, as opposed to steroids, which are strictly, for, as far as I know, yeah, I don't think you get any enhancing and psychoacting more. Yeah, right. There's no recreational aspect sure. to that drug use. But it's your job, you know what I mean? It makes your job, you know, it, it maybe enhances your job performance. Well, cocaine does the opposite to that. I can oh, tell really? you that. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, it, it does nothing for enhancement. Um, okay. In fact, I remember the first time, at first and only time mm -hmm. that I did cocaine and played a show, mm -hmm. it was an absolute disaster. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and uh, perhaps I'll save uh, those details for uh, the memoir sure. as well. Uh, <laughs> but um, just uh, suffice it to say that, um, uh, you know, so cocaine is 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 uh, an ego inflator. Mm -hmm. So the brilliance of the drug is in its ability to uh, create um, um, an, an idea of yourself that you can mm -hmm. wholeheartedly believe in, and it's a very giant idea of yourself. So if you've ever like been around someone who's high on cocaine, they're absolutely insufferable <laughs> because they think they are a lot bigger than they actually are. Mm -hmm. um, I can't. I cringe when I think about some of the rabid, meaningless chatter that was escaping my mouth while on that drug. Mm -hmm. um, but when you are in that environment, when you are gigging, when you're touring, when you're um, around um, other um, celebrities or other performers, there's, a, there's an energy field there that cocaine is very, very... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Amenable to, I guess you could say. Okay. There's just something about uh, that environment that it's kind of like an it's it spikes whatever's already going on with just a little bit of an extra push. Mm -hmm. It enables you to party a lot longer as well. So if you're drinking a lot, which many, 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 many of us do, mm -hmm. um, and you want to, you know, last long, <clears throat> last longer, if you will. Um, cocaine um, is a per it sort of sobers you up, actually. Mm. So there would be many, many, many evenings that went on until noon because I was, uh, you know, getting drunk and then sobering up with cocaine. Then I would feel too wired, so I would try to douse it with some more alcohol. Then I would get too drunk and then sober up again with cocaine. Ooh. Next thing I know, it's six in the morning. It's not enough. I keep going and I keep going and I keep going. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's different. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a drug that I recommend anybody take ever. Huh. So, for instance, you'll, if you listen to Sam Harris, he, he and I believe there's a there's there's more evidence that's surfacing and more people getting behind the MDMA bus mm -hmm. um, in terms of you know it's like it's being seen as also uh, having a somewhat of a medicinal quality. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, in uh, with specifically with respect to PTSD. Mm -hmm. um, yes. And I can as as a as a person who has also done. Uh, a, a fair amount of, of ecstasy and, or MDMA, mm -hmm. I, I can I would encourage that the usage of that drug. I think it actually does have some right. some of the psychotropic effects of that drug are actually beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, cocaine is evil, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> It is evil. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> well, um, so, okay. You, uh, you've explained this a little bit to me, and I want you to explain yourself because 
you know, when I knew you first, you were a man named Carlos D. Mm-hmm. And you were actually the only, I think, member of Interpol who I knew the name of. Um, you also had a very striking look at that time. I don't know if you, you probably don't look exactly the same as you did then, but. I do not. <laughs> you had a very distinctive haircut. You had a very distinct, like, style of clothing. So, yeah. Yeah. Who was Carlos D? Like, tell me about <laughs> Carlos D as, as somebody who's not Carlos D anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I. Uh, uh, essentially, uh, Carlos D is sort of like a club persona. Okay. I was, uh, around the same time that the band was, um, you know, gaining ascendance and, you know, we got a record deal and all of that where we would actually have to put our names to something. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, you know, I was an extreme, uh, you know, I was, a uh, going out at just about every night and, um, I was very popular in this New York downtown scene. I was DJing a lot downtown. Mm-hmm. So when you're in that community, you're, you're really, you're a club kid. Like that's sort of the, that's the environment. Mm-hmm. There's a certain kind of, uh, style that you have when you, when you are, uh, when you're a club kid and, and mm-hmm. taking on a kind of flat name is sort of, um, you know, something that, uh, that, um, um, a lot of people do. So for instance, you know, a fellow club promoter and DJ was, went by the name of Justine D. Mm-hmm. Um, one other guy who owns uh, a couple bars downtown goes by Johnny T. Um, so, uh, and they were like, they started like a club called Motherfucker and, uh, you know, lots of people had sort of like initials on their, on their surnames or they would just go ahead and make up a completely different name altogether. Okay. And this is a tradition that goes way back, all the way back to the nineties and the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was just that. And so I figured, okay, well now this band is, is somewhat taking off. Like, what am I going to uh, call myself? And at that time I was a club kid. I mean, that's that was my identity through and through. It was all about how I looked, all about my style, all about what outlandish things I could say. I just wanted to shock people. I wanted to cause a stir. And so I wanted my name to be part of that kind of idea. Uh, someone that was kind of flashy, someone that was sort of um, a bit uh, in the know, if you will. And um, And so then as the band you know, uh, gained popularity, it seemed that people from all over the world actually chimed in with that. They said, oh, yes, that, that works. So the thing that I was projecting was actually reading, um, which I didn't know whether it would or not. I mean, up until that point, I was just in New York City, but mm-hmm. actually, like, I could see, oh, other people were really appreciating this idea. And then, of course, the years go by and things keep evolving. I make more money, I buy better suits, and I get a tailor. And then, you know, the whole thing gets inflated to this point where mm-hmm. the persona kind of got ahead of me, mm-hmm. like, big time. And... You know, I reached a point by the third record, uh, and so in the third record is when I decided to go by Carlos Dengler. Okay. Um, because I think at that point I had crashed, and there was a big crash, and uh, I sobered up, and it was just it was sort of the beginning of the end for me, if you will, and just in terms of my my time in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sort of when I, I kind of realized that that persona had gone, gotten ahead of me. Now, that was like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so since then, you know, my life has been ra- radically altered. Um, and I haven't gone by that that appellation in, 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 in years, in, in about 10 years. And mm-hmm. it's been a long time since anything having to do with whatever I was interested in while I was in the band has been the case for me. Um, and it's, it's kind of spooky actually, you know, because of how well defined that persona was. It was like, it was a character in the, in a movie (laughs) or a character in a story, a story that I was weaving, a story that I believed in. Um, and it's somewhat become synonymous with my presence in the group and whatever, whatever is understood by that or, uh, or my bass playing or, um, again, I haven't played, I haven't really played bass in about 10 years. Wow. And, uh, and so it's just, it's a part of a different life and it's part of a different dimension for me, really. Hmm. Um, and so when people, you know, the music press insists on continuing to call me that whenever they catch wind, for instance, the essay or anything else that, uh, right. one man show that I put out last year, all projects that have virtually nothing to do with whoever I was at that time. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for them, there's a market expediency behind that because they want as much clickbait 
um, possible for their articles, so they put a headline sure. that has Carlos D on there because Carlos D is more clickbaity than Carlos Dengler. Um, and I just, you know, it just shows me that I just, you know, I don't really have any business, you know, being part of the music industry anymore mm. because they, I am known there as a certain persona. It's sort of like if I like had a reputation in the Wild West and I decided to go east and reform myself. <laughs> if I went back to the saloon at, in Deadwood, they'd be like, oh, look, here's Carlos D. Again. <laughs> what, was, what kind of six shooters is he going to pull out now? And, I'd be, and I would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I've changed. I've changed, don't you see? I have no six shooters any longer. <laughs> That's sort of what's going on right now, right. where there's like this community that knows me for doing certain things and being mm-hmm. a certain kind of person that I have long, long um, said goodbye to. Right. Um, so really, you know, what I'm trying to do for the future with, with the memoir, uh, with, any of the, with any of the acting work that I do, is just really try to promote and offer up for the world, you know, some of the new stuff that I've been doing with my life, the, the stuff that feels much, much more uh, present for me. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. I mean, it, it makes me think of... Uh documentary I saw about Hunter S. Thompson one time, it was like, he went and spoke at a college, like, you know, several years after Fear and Loathing came out, and he just like started, you know, fire extinguishing the crowd, like, just to be outrageous, and somebody wow. asked him, why are you doing this? And he's like, isn't this what they expect from me? You know, like, like they, they wow. want the wild and crazy guy that's gonna, you know, do something unexpected, and, and mm-hmm. you know, leave this trail of, of genius in their in their wake, or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, you know, but but that's not, you know, people will change, and people evolve, and people, you know, if you get, you know, famous or well-known or get notoriety of any kind at one point in your life, it's like, do you have to be in a frozen frame of that for the rest of your life to still have people accept you? You know, it's like people continue to change throughout their lives and go through different phases and, and careers and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's yeah. kind of an unrealistic expectation, but... It is. I, I, I think nobody really... real People don't realize this, and, and you know, the, 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 the consumers certainly don't, and and um, I would even venture to say that many of the uh, the performers don't as well. That how, the degree to which the, an investment in a two-dimensional uh, character is essential for just the basic doings of any kind of performance career. Mm-hmm. There is a brand that you have to uh, sign on to that you become known for, whether or not it's something that you decided to do, like let's say, someone you know consciously, like let's say a Marilyn Manson, who you know probably was made a very, very conscious effort to create a persona and mm-hmm. to market it uh, that way, or whether it becomes accidental and perhaps even, you know, somewhat more subtle as like, uh, I don't know, somebody like, um, uh, who you know, who would be a good example? Somebody like Sam Smith, you know, who's just an honest singer-songwriter. But mm-hmm. to a certain extent, there's a brand there. There's, a, there's an idea about who or what you're listening to, some kind of story or some kind of fantasy that you believe in about him. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that seems to be, in order for records to get sold, in order for copies to be printed, in order for things to, to in order for people to make money, apparently that is what needs to happen. There, there's an element of two-dimensionality. And some performers, like quite famously, like Meryl Streep, are going to say, you know what, that's the deal that I made, but I need some space, so I'm going to do my laundry, actually. I'm not going to have a servant do that for me. Mm -hmm. And that's like a way of, like a radical way for like somebody whose life is just so huge to retain some kind of normality, something that grounds them. Like if I can touch my towels, Mm -hmm. you know, and fold them, Mm -hmm. and when I dry myself later with them, knowing that I was the one who folded and, 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 and dried them and cleaned them right. by putting them in the washer and dryer myself, mm-hmm. somehow my experience of reality will be much more like three-dimensional. I'll be able to see yeah. who I am as a person in something so mundane as that. Mm-hmm. But you would be shocked to see how little your average celebrity or average famous performer has the ability to, to take care of themselves on that level. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly very well 
in the direction of where um, my life was headed. Mm -hmm. And um, I was deeply, deeply um, alarmed by that uh, Mm -hmm. and had to, you know, do something about it. Yeah. It's kind of like that famous quote of, you know, wearing the mask and, you know, not being able to figure out where the mask ends and and you begin or whatever. It's wear it for long enough. What's the difference, you know? Basically, you, you, uh, I was telling this to my my castmate in the production that I'm in right now earlier today. Uh, You're basically waking up and for the first 10 seconds of the day you are you Mm -hmm. and then the moment you get out of the bed and you put your two feet on the floor you have to become that brand you have to start taking the calls as that person you have to start fulfilling the expectations that people have of that idea of Mm -hmm. that brand until about 10 seconds before you go to sleep (laughs) when you lay down and you get to be you again so basically 20 seconds per day is when you get to be who you actually are (laughs) wow <laughs> and in exchange, you get a whole bunch of these other things, obviously, sure. material goods. Oh, yeah. But if you listen to somebody like Russell Brand, who seems to maybe have everything that he may need, he will he will will speak very, very clearly about the ultimate vacuousness of those material goods that mm-hmm. one, you know, one seems to think are uh, worth uh, giving up, sacrificing uh, one's own perception of one's own humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, now when you meet people um, and they slowly start to figure out who you are, because you're not going around as Carlos D anymore, uh, and then they figure this out that you used to be this person. How do you kind of what do you how do you introduce yourself to people and what do you what do you <laughs> say to them when they when they realize this? <laughs> well, you know, the, I'm really lucky. You know, the one wonderful thing about the theater community which is essentially the the, the it's basically the community that I that I am uh, that I spend the the great mm-hmm. you know a majority of my time in um, is they don't know uh, who Interpol is and they don't know <laughs> you know they don't their music is is, is, is prominent in, in in the community but it isn't front and center the way it is let's say you know in other in, in other places mm-hmm. um, it has happened through my I've gotten about six years of, of actor training, and, and it has happened every once in a while. I'll be in a class or a, in a hallway, and, and someone will say, oh, I love your band. Um, but it was rare. It was, for the most part, I definitely got to um, proceed utterly anonymously, and I just want to say how grateful I am that I was able to be accepted to such a wonderful program as NYU Grad Acting and to get an MFA and to get the tools that are necessary to do this work without having to um, pretend that I was somebody else. I could just walk into a room and say, hi, I'm Carlos. Obviously, I was a Google search away from people realizing who this Carlos was, but just that window, (laughs) that just that one morsel of time that I had between me and the other person where the specter of Interpol's fame did not like overshadow the relationship at that moment was worth it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, because there was that one, that you know how they say, uh, you know, the first impressions are what count. Sure. And I have benefited greatly from that phenomenon because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, it, the first impression that most people have gotten from me, from me from, since leaving the group is just of some, some guy who's, who's trying to make an acting career for himself, mm-hmm. like they are as well. Sure. We share that beautiful reality of sort of just what is this, what is this life, what, what, are we, what have we chosen, we love this, this is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get that day. And then, you know, if somebody says, oh, you know, he was in the band, blah, blah, blah. And then people Google search me and boom. Oh, my God. Look at all those pictures. Oh, my God. He looked like a vampire. Oh, my God. What's this? <laughs> then, you know, it changes the next day. Oh, I searched you. I just want you to know. That's really impressive uh, history you've got there, Carlos. <laughs> and, and when that happens, then, you know, I find that because the first impression was there, it, it's a manageable situation, mm-hmm. and I just—I am just—I just feel grateful. I've made friends. I've been able to get close to people. I've able—I've been able to realize who I am mm-hmm. without this, like, without the constant noise of of that life. Um, and I feel really, really grateful for that for that opportunity. I think. It, you know, I don't realize how big Interpol was most of the time, mm-hmm. and I think there's an element of strategy in that ignorance on my part, because I'm just sort of trying to, like, do what I want to do today. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I failed to realize just how huge the band was, and yet I have been able to experience this anonymity. Um, and I know that if, let's say, the group were maybe just a little bit more famous, perhaps I might not have even had that opportunity. Right. Um, and then I would have had to choose to do something else. Um, right. So uh, it's been great. In, from that respect yeah yeah and I, I know what you mean about that it's like it was just it seems like it was just famous enough you know like the people that knew about it knew about it and it wasn't like my mom I don't think my mom knows who you were or so you know what I thank mean? god it can we hang out one day I'd love to take your mother out for coffee please <laughs> my mom me. listens sometimes so you know there are offers on the table mom. don't tell her who I am I have a nice cup of coffee with your mother she doesn't need to know who I am then she can google search <laughs> okay deal <laughs> but um so uh did you always want to be an actor even before you were um in you know interpol because you said before that you wanted to be a philosophy professor um so it was this always a dream that you had to be an actor no, no. absolutely not and, and in fact i have to also thank interpol very much for even giving me the permission to pursue this kind of a career because i would have never gotten this crazy outlandish idea of pursuing a life in the theater uh without feeling like I was already a performer to begin with, which I could only feel uh, because the band took off quite accidentally. Um, so if it wouldn't have been for Interpol, I would have never thought to myself, oh, wouldn't it be great to act? Um, mm -hmm. Because up until then, I was going to pursue a life of the mind, if you will. Sure. Um, it, so it was something that happened much, much later. Like, I think... Probably, like, in 2005, maybe, mm. I want to say. Like, I took my first acting class, and that was, like, around when the Antics, the Antics tour was finishing up. Mm. Um, and, you know, then it just, I thought, like, okay, if I could just, you know, I'll take a couple acting classes. Let me just see what it's like. I don't know. I'm not too serious. I got this main gig right now, which is Interpol, and that's that's the thing. And I just kept coming, kept going back. I was like, wait, what? What is this? What's happening here? I like this. I like every time I would go, I'd be left with something that I wanted to pursue. Like, oh, that wasn't enough. Like, I need to know more about this. I need to take this other class. I need to take. I need to start reading plays. Oh my god, I didn't know that I love theaters. It just kind of caught on, if you will. And until it reached a certain critical mass for me yeah well that's really i just think it's really cool that you've had these different lives and you know like i i'm a journalist now but i went to school for elementary education so i, I definitely mm. you know in a smaller way of course <laughs> i wouldn't compare my elementary education career to interpol by any means but um, <laughs> but uh yeah but i mean i i like the idea of don't get stuck in a rut and don't think that this is if you're one thing this time in your life you can't be something else in a different part i, I always think that's important to remember you can always have another act you know it's a very American idea, sure. I will admit. Yeah. You know, the idea of the self-made man, the idea of, like, the person who came from nothing. Um, only in this country would this be possible. Sure. And Absolutely. many times I criticize how little this country enables artists to flourish because there's no funding. Uh, there is absolutely no net underneath, and that is wrong. But mm -hmm. one of the uh, upsides of this, of not having a net, which you, if you go to any European country, you'll see that why this is the case, is that there's, also, there's not only no net, but there's also no ceiling. Mm -hmm. So if you do just decide to take on a crazy, absolutely maniacal idea like I have, which mm -hmm. is to switch careers at a, at, you know, a, a certain moment in your life, um, you can you can probably if you, with enough determination, you you may just get away with it. <laughs> you know, you may just make out like a bandit. Yeah. Um, whereas in France or Germany, you wouldn't be able to do that. It's sure. a much more structured society in that respect. But again, you have a net. You may not want to leave that career because you're being taken care of. Sure. Um, so this is just, this is still the wild, wild west in mm -hmm. that respect. Definitely. Um, now, was that, what was the main reason that you left Interpol in the end? Was it just because you were tired of, of the grind of, of doing this, this thing that you've done for what, at that point, what, what, 12 years, 15 years, something like that? Yeah, 12. 12. I left in January of, of 2010, uh, right after New Year's. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the band you could say truly formed in 98. We met in 97, but, okay. but the band kind of like came together with the name Interpol in 1998. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, 12 years. Um, you know, 
I feel like depending on the year, depending on the phase that I'm going through, I will have a different answer to, to this question. You know, it is the kind of thing that I think I'm always going to be revisiting for the rest of my life. And rightly so, rightly so, because it was, it's pro it, it'll probably go down as like, for me, in terms of uh, from an autobiographical standpoint, the the uh, the most important decision I've ever made in my life, probably, mm -hmm. um, maybe the most consequential. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, it did not happen easily. It took three years for me to really mull it over. That um, last year was sort of when I put the band on. Kind of not. I wasn't threatening to leave, but I was, you know, sort of. You know, saying things that that you know were very much hinting towards a, an imminent departure if things didn't change. Mm -hmm. um, I've looked back at that time with varying degrees of remorse uh, for some of the conduct that I um, um, subjected my bandmates to, uh, some of the yelling, some of the anger, um, some of the manipulation. Um, and also with a sometimes with a degree of stridency or pr pride uh, that I escaped a situation that wasn't for me and that probably might have ensnared other people with with its uh, wares you know the money the um, the, the job security the you know because it is it was a fairly secure job in that respect mm -hmm. Interpol was is and as you can see you know they still continue they're still flourishing today so there's um, you know there was every reason to believe that the that the band would con would could go on forever mm -hmm. um so i was leaving behind a, a whole industry a whole a whole way of life that i think many other people would not have dared to leave because it was just too lucrative too stable too secure mm -hmm. um and maybe most people just probably wouldn't want to you know they just mm -hmm. simply wouldn't want to but i wasn't one of those people and um at the time i was not I just wasn't equipped to, to understand the complexity of the situation I was in. And so I reacted and I just was very angry a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So that being said, um, you know, I knew that there was something authentic about my departure, like something that uh, uh, meant the world to me, like something that something that I was protecting. Mm -hmm. And something that I'm still pursuing today, the, the expression of my free will, the expression of myself, my artistic independence, um, which I could not achieve under the banner of Interpol. Like, mm -hmm. I just couldn't. I was always going to be known as Carlos D. There was nothing I was, that was going to change that. Um, I had a lot of, like, dysfunctional attitudes embedded in my brain, and I knew that I had bad programming and that I needed to get out in order to heal, in order to get eradicate my my system of this sort of toxic... Uh, thinking in this toxic dysfunctionality, which the band's inner workings also contained independently of me, mm -hmm. but I also contributed to that stuff. Right. And of course, I got all that from my family. Um, doesn't everybody? Doesn't everybody, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Don't we all know that? Oh, yeah. You know, so in that sense, it was also a personal decision. It was a kind of like a life, like a flash of light of realizing, oh my God, I am, I will not be able to grow if I stay here. And mm -hmm. I think what, what I just didn't, what couldn't see back then, which I can see very clearly right now is how utterly heartbroken I was that this dream of this band, how wonderful it was, all the happiness that it was bringing to so many people that I couldn't stand by it any longer. Like, mm -hmm. I think I was really heartbroken by that. And, and I wasn't able, I wasn't vulnerable enough at the time to truly see that and just live with that mm -hmm. and I reacted instead and so I just was angry all the time and, and I you know um, said mean things and did did mean things um, it's like what I like to call escape velocity you know anger can give you escape velocity from a situation that you find um, um, intolerable mm -hmm. um, so you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot. There was artistic disagreement. There was there was the, the aforementioned, you know, life stuff. There was um, just a simple falling in love with theater and just one feeling like, oh my god, like I, I don't know if I'll ever forgive myself if I didn't if I didn't pursue this. Uh, there was a feeling of regret that um, I had become. Uh, notorious, famous, infamous, how what 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 what, what have you um, for. Uh, something that I was good at, but not exactly something that I 
set out to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I didn't. I did not set out to be the bass player for Interpol. It sort of was part of a very chaotic time for me mm-hmm. personally. Um, I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life kind of weighing the scales there, you know, like kind of like on one hand putting like, oh, the, Interpol was fantastic. Look what it did. It was part of the scene. It was part of this movement. It was this beautiful music. It, it was so sophisticated. It was critically acclaimed, like blah, blah, blah. Let's throw all of that on there. And then on the other hand, I'm going to have, yeah, but I could never be who I needed to be in this group. I needed to find out who I was. I, there was no other way. I was insane. I was literally clinically insane. I was an addict. I needed to get out, you know. It's just one of those things where you are in a situation and you have to make a decision. Um, I, I mean, I, I stated in the essay, I'll always stand by it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't look back and really have to, you know, shudder sometimes about what I really did leave behind, which was a lot. It was a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's also hard, too, because I've always been amazed that, like, you know, if they're, you see the Rolling Stones are still going, and they've known each are other they? since. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're not. I don't know. They were going recently, anyway, <laughs> a few years ago. But anyway, they've, they've known them, each other, for the most part, since they're, like, 14 and 15, and they're, you know, in their 70s now. So it's, like, it's kind of weird to, like, think that you're going to work at your day job with people that you knew when you were that young forever. Like, it's like, if you just keep going in this band, you'll always just you know, Larry from down the street when you were, you know, living on this certain area. And it's like, well, we're just going to work together forever now. Okay. It's like, all right. Like I, I've never had a coworker that long, you know, yes, right? exactly. <laughs> That's a really great point. You know, when there's something that happens in, in when you're in, when you're in the, the theater where you are in a play and you're, you're doing the work for, you know, anywhere between a month to eight months, sometimes if, if the play does well over a year and you bond. So there's something that, you know, between actors and in a play, the bond that happens is so, um, I can't, I don't have words for it. It's just so pure and immediate and readily available. Mm. There's just, our hearts are open because they need to be open for this work. And then it's over Mm -hmm. and you, and you go back and then you have to find another gig and you have to go and find other actors. And then it starts all over. You join a new cast and you're like, Oh, I love you. (laughs) And it starts all over again. And it's this almost like a, a maddening kind of, um, um, uh, Groundhog Day, right? except with a diff- different group of people. And, it, you know, there's different ways that you can react to that. A lot of people get jaded uh, about that. A lot of people, it suits them fine. I, I You know, it, it hurts me when I have to say goodbye to a cast mm-hmm. and, and say, oh, you know, I don't know if I'll ever see this person again, or I certainly won't have this kind of a relationship with this person again, unless I happen to work with them again, which is completely beyond my control. Mm-hmm. Now, as painful as that is, I have found that that is much, much more suitable for my temperament. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could not breathe in a, I, in a situation like with Interpol. It was too claustrophobic. It was too, too, um, too intense. The idea, the, com- the level of commitment that, was, that I was looking at, that these would, this would be my life for that long mm-hmm. just you know it, it, I, I never was comfortable with it and um, I kind of at a certain point I reached I reached a, a decision to, to believe that I never would be comfortable with it mm-hmm. um, I, I also feel like that the, the business model of a rock band is like what you said with the Rolling Stones being a very classic example of that that it's just this kind of story this, this is the group these are the lads as it were and mm-hmm. here they're coming to your town to like take over for an evening and that's sort of the story that and then we, we just perpetuate this rock and roll story over and over and over again and I, you know I also didn't find that to be a very interesting story for me well and also like I've always you know I've, I've interviewed other musicians over time and they've always been touring so they'll never admit this but I know it's true uh, that you've got to be sick of playing certain songs that everybody wants to hear especially the hits and especially ones that like you know everybody knows and expects you to play and if you don't play them they're going to be like well they didn't play Yeah, it's It's like, wow, where's the freshness and the newness? The like 2000th time I play this song, you know, like, 
I mean, you know, not. To, I don't want to belabor the, the the issue by taking up more uh, podcast time. But, oh, you're fine. <laughs> but it's just like, uh, and I, and I probably will write a little bit about this in my memoir as well. That you know, uh, I really, I don't. I I'm very. I'm much more cynical about the capacity for a rock band to truly put out great work past a certain mm-hmm. record. Right. I, I think that if you really look across the, the gamut of all the bands that have released more than five records mm-hmm. and you try to like come up with a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth record that really is seminal, that it like in cha- moves the dial, changes hearts, reaches people. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find that. It's, oh, I'm not yeah. saying that, 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 that they don't exist. I think, you know, some of Depeche Mode's later work is actually exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just one example. Right. There are many bands that have also done it, but as a, in, just in terms of statistics, I just don't think that it's really something that you can bank on. Mm-hmm. And there's something inherently volatile about some of the great rock music made by bands, not by singer-songwriters, not by solo artists. Mm-hmm. I mean bands. There's something volatile about that mixture that that kind of in, it benefits the music. And that volatility is like a ticking time bomb that's mm-hmm. ready to go off. And when it goes off, the band dissolves. And that story we have heard much more often than the story of the band who on their sixth or seventh record released another, like, seminal work. Mm-hmm. And and so I just, for me, I've that's what I've always believed in. That's what I always felt was the proper kind of attitude to take towards a rock band, which is just somewhat like what Morrissey and Johnny Marr have have taken on, which is just like, that was then, this is now, don't ask us about a reunion, <laughs> which I fully respect. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't want a Smith's reunion. I don't, I don't want yeah, to go somewhere right. and see a bunch of older men <laughs> pretending that they're in their 20s. It just doesn't do anything for me. And I think so many people are primed by this industry, by, this, uh, by the marketing strategies of this industry to, to put on – it's like they're putting – you know when you go to a, a 3D IMAX mm-hmm. and you're given the, the 3D glasses before you go in by the ushers. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a virtual usher before each stadium entrance <laughs> – of like youth goggles, like put these goggles on right. mm-hmm. and pretend. And everybody does it. Yeah. We're primed to do that. Oh, yeah. And and you know, I I just went to a Depeche Mode concert at Madison Square Garden and I did I put on those fucking goggles. Sure you did. So yeah. Because I wanted to because I paid the fucking ticket, so I'm not gonna get my money's worth, right? So it's just like I'm partaking in this thing too. So I'm I'm not saying that I'm not culpable or that I don't right. uh succumb every once in a while. Cliches are cliches like, for a reason, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I do I wanna be the guy that's on that stage doing sure. that no at yeah. a certain point i was like i think i've done my work mm-hmm. i really have oh yeah absolutely um so in the end of your essay you do mention that the band you're not in contact with right i mean you don't have a relationship with them I at all anymore no what if they did call you and say hey we're doing a one-off show would you do it <laughs> oh god getting the band back together <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would be lying if I didn't once in a while kind of kick back and put my feet up on a chair, pull out a pipe and go, hmm, I wonder what that would be. (laughs) You know, and then I look at myself in the mirror with like kind of like the shabbier attire that um, more affordable attire that I've been donning as of late. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just try to ask myself whether I could possibly ever get on a stage with those guys. Mm. You know, that's not really something that I um, I have any idea about. I don't know what that would be like. I mean, on the one hand, it would be the greatest. I think it would be such a, it would be such a seismic event. I think people would like to lose their shit if that happened. Oh, yeah. Um, on the other hand, I feel like I would be disowning the very thing that I left the group for, sure. which is the decision to say, no, this is it. This is, this is where the line is. And there's no more reunion. There's no, we can't turn back the clock. And I refuse to pretend that we will. Mm-hmm. And I think, think, I think every reunion is, is based on this kind of like n- bullshit, nostalgic kind of <laughs> fix that people long for, mm-hmm. um, you know, artists many, many times do it for for the money. Mm-hmm. There's so much money in it that, you know, they can't say no. Sure. 
Um, I hope that it never comes down to an issue of money for me, that if, if I were to do something like that, that it would make sense on some kind of emotional level, mm-hmm. that maybe I, it wouldn't feel like such an abrogation of my, 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 um, everything that I'm, I've been working towards. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a delightful idea. It's, you know what I think more about? I, I, sh- I think more about them. I just think more about the guy. Like I, I kind of don't care too much about the mm-hmm. the band so much. I think about Daniel. I think about Paul. I think about Sam. I think about them as people. Mm-hmm. Something that I did not do when I was in that group. Sure. I did not look at them as people. Mm-hmm. I I did not see people on the other side of the table when I was talking with them. Mm-hmm. I saw, you know, projections of right. of what I thought. You know, I needed to believe about my reality. Right. And that's kind of what's most most important mm-hmm. for me is somehow living in a way that um, restores the humanity that I, in a way, took took away from mm-hmm. from that group. Well, yeah. I mean, and if maybe if you hadn't left, maybe you would still think of them that way, and you wouldn't have this perspective that you have now. You know. Now, now you're talking wisdom, Rob. Oh wow. <laughs> now, now you're just dropping wisdom. I didn't it know that we were, from, It happens from time to time. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to go this far. Yes, you are absolutely right. Oh, we go in. We go in. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so tell me about your memoir. How far are you into it? That's got to be interesting, right? Yeah, it's not very far. I'm. I'm. I uh, recently spent a week in Vermont, and I banged out a, a proposal. Mm-hmm. So my agent is gonna. We're gonna go and meet with some publishers soon. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and so I'm hoping that you know I can get actually get cracking on this. Um, in earnest uh, next year. Awesome. Yeah. And it's um, not going to be uh, your, obviously it's not going to be your typical uh, rock star memoir. And I mm-hmm. would never even call it a rock star memoir. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be essayistic. It's going to be uh, topic oriented. I'm sh- trying to like construct essays that sort of like aren't beholden to a chronology. So like if, you know, there's an essay about, you know, uh, well, one that I'm writing right now is about my hiking trips, but I found that like somehow I was able to get into like what I was pursuing by going into nature that was similar to what I was pursuing when I was in the band. So then I would like kind of jump to an episode that happened uh, while I was in Interpol that was related to the thing that happened like five years later while I was like climbing a mountain. Sure. Um, so it, the memoir is going to be organized that way. Um, it's, you know, it's going to be very heavy with like personal stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to talk a lot about stuff that I've done after the, the band. I really want to write it from the perspective of somebody that's kind of lived outside of the marketplace, outside of the industry for a long time. That's done a lot of soul searching, which I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I want it to be a, a, a memoir that reaches as many people as possible. I, I am deliberately constructing something that can be um, read and fully appreciated and digested by people who perhaps have never even heard of Interpol. Mm-hmm. Um, in many respects, that may disappoint Interpol fans. Maybe they will want to hear more or mm-hmm. something different or something that fits more with what they believe they know about me. But again, you know, a very big reason for why I'm writing the memoir is to also clarify how my life has changed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hearing myself talk about this stuff, I kind of like feel like there's a lot of vanity in all of this. Like, you need to see who I am today, buddy. And it's true. You know, uh, narcissism is a part of, of any performer's reality. Sure. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying or yeah. just lying to themselves. They would just it's, do it in, in private then if they didn't sure, exactly. want anyone to see they, it. You know? Thing into the microphone in front of the mirror, you know. <laughs> uh, n- not that I do that. But, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's okay. There, there's an element of healthy narcissism to this. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I want to write something that, you know, will fulfill my narcissistic imperatives, but more importantly, will um, hopefully inspire people, not just people who are looking to get into music, but people who are struggling with who they are, Mm -hmm. with what the world expects them to be. If I could speak to those people, 
and just offer up what I've experienced in, in terms of that realm mm. in, in a very unexpected way, then my mission will have been accomplished. Well, great. Well, I, I would definitely like to read that when it comes out for sure. Um, but uh, what, you know, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you want to get it to? to? Uh, no, I think... Uh, um, it, may be, it might be nice to talk about you know what I'm, where I am, where I'm calling you from now. Oh yes, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah what, what the production you're in now in Houston? That's it's called a Proust Sonata. Is that yeah? Called? It's okay. called a Proust Sonata, and it's quite an interesting work. It's it's. Uh, well, I'm portraying Marcel Proust, but and I'm reading mm. um, excerpts of his prose, um, and it's not easy. And I'm learning a lot. And it's um, it's not a play. It's sort of like a narration, mm. but acted out narration. So I have to actually be Proust and. And um, it's all done within the midst of a, of a concert um, featuring some Chopin, um, some Schumann, some Beethoven, some Fauré, uh, and it's piano, violin. There's a string quartet. There's some. Uh, there's a soprano. There's a tenor. Uh, the camera of Houston, it's a production company, is uh, putting up the event. Sarah Rothenberg, who is the artistic director of the camera, is putting it up at the Moody Center for Arts in Houston. Um, it's a lovely evening of just uh, there'll be projections of paint, paintings that Proust loved. It's a, you could call it like a kind of his, historical kind of retro, you know, uh, an evening with Proust, you could, you could call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll get to hear beautiful concert music and, um, and some acting. And it's just lovely. It's really my cup of tea. I, uh, you know, I love Shakespeare and a lot of this is pretty Shakespearean in its, in its breath. Um, so yeah, it's a fantastic time. I don't know if you'll be posting the, the, uh, if you'll be um, um, posting the, the podcast in time before... Uh, when does it close? Uh, well, it's just three nights. Oh. It's, it's this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. I'll get it out a little bit early so people have time to hear it before... You know, that, would be, that yeah. would be fantastic. It's at Rice University in Houston. Cool. All right. Well, if anyone's uh, nearby, definitely go check it out. But um, have you... Uh, uh, last question. What, what have you been listening to or reading or, you know, what cultural events have you been attending here? Yeah, um, I recently decided to uh, do this kind of what I call book race to the Last Jedi premiere. I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and for some reason, I said, "Let me just let the premiere of the Last Jedi be my end date." And I put up a stack of books, and I took a picture of it and posted it on Instagram and said, "This is my goal for this by mid-December." And it's uh, you know I just finished the Tana Hesse Coates book, oh yeah, which is amazing. Um, before that, I read uh, Russell Brand's book. Um, I'm now I'm reading some Proust. Um, and I'll be reading some memoir. I'll be reading The Bell Jar. I'll be reading a, a great book, from what I understand, called uh, Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. So some memoirs, The Glass Castle. Hopefully I'll make it by December 15th. Um, so I've been reading a lot of nonfiction um, uh, here and there. And listening-wise, you know, I've been on this, like, Crystal Castles kick. Mm. I got into them, like, really late. Um, so they've, they've just been kind of on rotation. Uh, I've been kind of picking up some jazz and then just going back to like my, my classical music staples. A lot of times what I like to put on, um, is, is, um, ambient music like, um, uh, Patrick O'Hearn and, um, another artist that I really love called, uh, um, uh, Tom Brennan. And they're just sort of like new age kind of atmospheres, mm. really, you know, sort of dark and long. And I think, you know, I use it for meditation. I use it for yoga mm. and I use it for reading and writing. Um, it's per- a really, really stimulating, really peaceful music. Very cool. Well, um, I've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for being so generous with it. Um, You're I, welcome. It was my pleasure. It was really great to hear from you. I'm, 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 you know, I have the greatest respect for your show. Oh, wow. That means a lot. Thank you so much. And uh, we should definitely talk again soon. And, and good luck uh, doing uh, doing what you're doing. I appreciate it. So. All right, Rob. Thanks have a lot. Fun. You too. All right. Bye.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.